0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Greg Gerke. Greg is a writer and critic, and is the editor and founder of Socrates on the Beach. Welcome to the show, Greg.
1: Thank you, Ben. Great to be here.
0: How is life in New York in this pandemic?
1: (laughs) It's uh, strange and scary and in some ways worse than the first time because everyone's trying to live with it uh, and go about their business and it's just not... (laughs) It's not working so well, but uh, that's what the government have decided to push, and so we're just soldiering on as best we can.
0: Is it worse uh, in New York than the rest of the country at the moment, or is it pretty bad everywhere?
1: Well, oh, I think it's sweeping now. I mean, it it started the 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 wave started here, but and now it's because the variant just goes so fast it's i think it's a record hospitalizations right now all over the country
0: yeah it's a pretty scary time to live in
1: yeah it's also amazing i mean nothing like this has happened since world war ii i think this is maybe the biggest event in world history since world war ii so it's kind of amazing living in it
0: yeah one thing we were talking about just before was the fact that I guess this gives you some time to do some writing and to be at home looking after children during pandemics and things like that how has your I guess approach to writing changed over this period
1: uh (laughs) well I think it's it's gone in stages it's gone from there's no way I can write fiction in this world with what's going on, fiction seems meaningless. That was the first impulse. And I I don't think I wrote fiction for a year. And then I thought, well, maybe it's possible to get a lot of reading done. And then that didn't really work at all because of the anxiety and uh, kids being at home and online schools. Uh, but then, you know, there was some light, probably a, a year into it, and uh, suddenly I started getting things done, and I was working on uh, editing the essay book for Zero Gram, So that worked out, and I actually added a couple of essays uh, in, that, in those early pandemic days to it one on Alexander through, I remember. So, it, you know, it, it, it was hard and then easier, and then it's just been going a little smoother in the past year. Now it's a little bumpy, but I hope and pray that it'll smooth, get smooth again.
0: I've been reading your writing for a while now. Um, I just finished See What I See and was blown away by it. How did you get into oh, the world of literary you. criticism?
1: Uh, probably accidentally, I think. I, you know, maybe twenty years ago, I really wanted to write about Mulholland Drive or something when I first saw it, but I didn't really have the tools to do that. Uh, and I and I'd and I'd read, you know, Pauline kale and and a lot of the famous film critics, but I didn't have the, uh, the passion or the background to do it. And then over the years, I, I started to write little things for um, websites, maybe something on Coatsayas, Age of Iron, for things like the quarterly conversation, which have now come and gone. Um, and then I started to write about Kubrick's films and um, kind of more of a memoir on Kubrick's films, which I, I've i kind of abandoned, but I'm going to ransack parts of it. And I have already ransacked many parts of it for other things. So um, I think it, It was there, but in that time also, uh, William Gass was reintroduced to me and that was probably the major event because here was a accomplished fiction writer and an accomplished critic and reading Gass's essays was a a turning point because it was like a re-education. I mean, I only, I only have an English degree and no MFA, but it was an education in, in in everything: literature, philology, history, language, philosophy of language. So, I think looking at Gass's example, that's that's when I started to write more serious works of criticism, but they were still flabby and wrong and and naive um and then a few editors started to let me do whatever it was i was trying to do and i think it was coming from a much more non-academic uh level and the editors at the la review of books and movie uh the streaming the film streaming website they have a notebook um, Section where they publish criticism. Those two editors m 3AM magazine, Andrew Galix, started to really let me publish things that were a little off, off base. That, you know they they weren't in step with what what's you normally think of as criticism, like bringing in yourself into the criticism uh, to a very um, extreme degree, you know, talking about your personal life, even more so than the artwork. So they were somehow open to that. I think much more in the case of films. I, I was doing that. The books, I still, I still stayed the course, but I think in the last few years, I've changed more and more to trying to. Um, Expound about my life in terms of of the book, but you know, not not necessarily my life, but what the artwork does to me personally. Because I know a lot of people don't want to hear about the critic's life, but I think there's like there's a, a a magic way to do that, and some people, you know, Gas and Guy Davenport. Can do that to some extent, and I was really following their lead, Hardwick a little bit. Um, not so much Sontag. so i I've my passions have been film and books, and I've just tried to uh, um, bring something to them that that was interesting and, and with gas. Gass's uh, essays as as the main impetus Um, and then I went to interview him and so that I I came away with a lot of ideas from that as well so yeah.
0: It's one of the things about your work that it is so personal I think one of my favorite pieces in um, See What I See is the essay about your time in Paris after you were just uh, you're with your newly newly uh wedded wife I believe and yeah it's funny because yeah and it's just such a a great personal piece that it, it's almost you expressing your love of literature and art in that city rather than anything else and and that's why I think it's it resonates so well with people like me because it's not about you uh being an art critic or being a you know a literature critic it's about you experiencing stuff and you going actually I'm just a lover and consumer of this product and this is how I experienced it
1: yeah exactly there was just something about travel pieces and trying to get to the heart of uh Romer Eric Romer and Jacques Rivette let's say and um you know I I, I was very scared about that piece that no one would take it, and no one did take it. It's not been published. Um, and neither the Romer, but a, a lot of people have pointed that out that they like they love those two, uh very long ones. and um I don't know. I think i it's all it was all based on all these poet critics. Virginia Woolf and um, Sontag, to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Hardwick, and just trying to write write passionately about yeah you know, what the art does, and uh, rather than trying to do takedowns or I mean there's no, there's just no sense in in doing that, and uh, so yeah.
0: I have to ask you that. William H. Gass, because he's a big part of, of your book, and it sounds like he's a massive mm-hmm. part of your influence. How did mm-hmm. you find meeting him and, uh, and I guess, getting to know his work that so well?
1: Well, I'd in, in college, I was told to read In the Heart of the Heart of the Country, and I did. I mean, this was 10 years before I uh, went to meet him. But I didn't know about the essays and all of that until a decade later and um, there was just something, I was trying to understand Wallace Stevens better as well and a lot of writers and he had the key to that as well. Rilke, his book Reading Rilke and all the Gertrude Stein essays. So it was kind of him being a teacher Distant teacher at the same time, and also um, coming to the tunnel. He was uh, he was almost ninety when I met him. So, but he was still you know sharp as as all out, and he uh, he was very welcoming, um, and I prepared for this interview for months and had, I don't know, 20 20 to 25 pages of questions. And I I bet I only asked less than half, maybe 40% of them, because he had uh, such detailed answers. Um, And in his answers, he would be answering all of the, other questions at the same time, basically, and I think he was doing me a favor too. I didn't. I think he he said, you know, the interviewing's not good for my soul. And I I can understand what he means. Um, but we did it on on his terms and his terrain, and uh, it was yeah, it was amazing to see
0: where he lived
1: and his library and. Tens of thousands of books, uh, all over, um, and I think it—it it was something that you know—to keep in the tradition because that's what, as you know, to take a a hard example, Ezra Pound said, "I have to go and meet the the major artists of my age," and he went to meet Henry James and Yates and many others. And he was at the center of all of that. And he told, you know, Hugh Kenner did the same thing. He went to meet him and Marianne Moore and William Carlos Williams. And so I felt I, I needed to do that. And um, it, it was, it was just, it was it was enlightening even more on a soul level than on a writing level, because you, you, you—I was able to see someone in in their environment and just seeing them as a person, because they they are a person. They're an, he's an artist, but he's also a person. So um, it was an eye-opening experience, and I totally recommend it. All of you, you know all the Murnane, the Mernane pilgrimages <laughs> that you guys can do over there.
0: Might have to travel out to country Victoria. Yes, <laughs>
1: if, if if the lockdown allows it.
0: Yeah. You do focus a bit on Australian literature. You've got a piece on Patrick White in your book, and you've written previously about Jen Craig and Murnane, obviously. What draws you to their work?
1: Well, Coetzee is... I would say his last essay book had two large essays on Patrick White, and I was wondering why I never read this person. So I got to it, and that's, that's how that happened. I mean, I've read Elizabeth Harrower, too. Um, I, I don't know. I think part of the last few years has been meeting a bunch of you fellows More fellows than gals on the Twitter, Emmett Stinson, who you who you've had on, and just being influenced about you know there's all these wonderful things out there to read. Why aren't we reading these things? And then Jen Craig was uh, she's also published by ZeroGram, so that was another. And Daniel Davis Wood, I should say as well, who uh, runs Splice. He's Australian and he had the idea for publishing that essay book in the first place uh, and reprinting a book of um, short fiction. so I there was a lot of people um, influencing that and then I would ask Daniel about, well, you know, what do you think about Patrick White? obviously he knows Patrick White, but like, you know I, I'd ask how did how does Patrick white? Right, like he does, and you know, we we go back and forth, and um, and Emmett uh, uh, Stinson had had pointed out a Luca Antara, yeah, Martin Edmund. and I think he's from New Zealand, actually, this this particular author. But I I mean I there's so there's so much in the world, and I think part of it is also. I want to get away from the United States and the crushing large press scene that only focuses on six or seven authors constantly. Every article is about the same six or seven people. And it's just, it's just, we have to get away from that. And um, so that's been a part of it. And I know you've had a lot of, of people that are um, the translator you had on of, of the Rush Sork and... Yeah, Max uh, Right, Max. Just pushing a different, different vibe, uh, different country, different languages, uh, just difference instead of the same old uh, hackneyed formulas that have now uh, apparently sensitivity readers so I I don't want to read anything that has gone through sensitivity (laughs) readers and I hope I hope that practice stops
0: so in terms of that what are you looking forward to covering in the future have you got a few people on your hit list
1: to just reading or writing about both Um, Yes, I've just completed a review of Elizabeth Hardwick's uh, uncollected essays that will be coming out uh, on New York Review of Books in May. So I've just read that because I love her essays and Sleepless Nights, the one novel uh, of hers that I love. So I'm just trying to find someone to publish that as I've just finished it. Well, a lot of, I've been reading a lot of Peter Hantke and uh, apparently he's finally having a a novel published in English, probably in a few months, and an essay collection. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be writing about that, but uh, I've been catching up on his earlier work. Uh, So that's been good. And I've, for Socrates on the Beach, this uh, website, I've just taken uh, the beginning of Emily Hall's novel, The Long Cut, which that's going to be published on Dolphy Archive in May, I believe. So uh, that's a stunning book. I've been uh, reading that. And uh, I'm going to publish an excerpt. So I'm looking forward to that. And probably, you know, Mark Da Silva's book is coming out. Very long, 1,300 pages. People are talking about Miss Macintosh, My Darling. <laughs> <A lot>. That's <laughs> another 1,300 pages or 1,400 pages. There's not going to be time to, to get to all these books. They're, they're just, they're so... Uh, there's so little time, and then you know you have to you have a family, you hopefully have friends in, in the that you can see in this in this new world we live in. so there's uh, and then there's reading for the uh, the website, which I kind of stagger and not do anything with it for you know a month and a half. and then I'll do the, all the reading in, in one you know, a couple, two, two, three, four weeks. So that will start in early February. So it's, it's really a matter of, you know, time management. And I was uh, supposed to do the McElroy Heinz Kidnap. I've been looking for a way that, that was re-released by the Zank uh, for the first time in its history. I've been looking for a way to mold uh, a McElroy piece out of more than just one. I wanted, so I've been reading a number of his books over the past half year because I wanted to make a fuller picture uh, in, in, in a longer piece. So I think that that's something I've been working on, but I'm, I'm still, there's still a few more books to read uh, in order to have something worthy to say, because um, I want to, I want to do him justice.
0: Is he someone you'd be interested in meeting? Um,
1: Yes. Uh, Well, I have met him. Um, He lives in New York uh, and I, he was wonderful enough to give me an excerpt to his uh, novel in progress, which may be called the stranger. But it's set in ancient Greece. He's he's amazing. You know, he's ninety one. He's working all the time. Multiple books. Multiple projects. He's so interested in life and and all the arts. He's 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 a real positive guy. Uh, it's amazing. Um, it's really amazing. I, I wish I had devoted more time to him before the last. It, actually, the pandemic coincided with me re- reading his books. That's when I started, um, and for years I confused him with Harold Brodkey <laughs> because they both had those two long books, uh, "Women and Men" and "Runaway Soul." For some reason, I. I Confuse them, but um, they're and they knew each other apparently, uh, but they're seemingly very different writers, uh, but but you know they're both. I, I can't say I've only read a little of Rodkey. McElroy is just he seems to be after something that's you know Proustian, that's in, ineffable Rilkean. Uh, like reading him is like it feels like listening to classical music or jazz more more than any there's no other reading experience that kind of covers and I think you've read a lot of him right I haven't read a lot of
0: him I've read I've read quite a bit but yeah I've probably read about I don't know I don't know five books I think by him but yeah
1: yeah there you go I mean that's that's a lot, a lot mm. more than a lot of other people have read. He, he just seems to—it's—it's like—it's like, it's like uh, you know, Stravinsky or Bartok. Listening to the, the sounds of the words in, in the syntax that he makes, it's incredible, right?
0: Yeah, he's unbelievable. Um, he's one of the writers who makes me feel completely dumb. He makes me feel. Like I am totally inadequate reading his work, um, <laughs> because I feel like he's just working on a completely different level. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of those books, yeah, I've just going over once. It's like there's so many things, but that's that's a real good experience too. I think, mm. like the uh, uh, we can we. You can only learn from the books that um that you can't understand you know I guess I'm quoting i'm uh, Goethe said that the easy things you can't really learn you know the page turners the the Ben learners just to rhyme i don't I don't for me i you know. It's a different experience. I, I want the Proustian, the Jamesian, the Joyceian, uh, the Wolfian experience. And out of, you know, the modern writers still alive, he's probably one of the very few. pension renane Anka.
0: Among all this, you also write fiction. You've got a... Mm-hmm book of short stories you wrote especially especially the bad things what's your process in writing like do do you is the essays the focus do you go back to the fiction occasionally how do you do it
1: uh I, I kind of started in fiction and then went towards nonfiction, and then um I've been trying to just do them at the same time I guess in the last decade or so and hopefully that Will work out, um, but maybe the fiction is is starting to sound more like essays. Uh, so, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, and I'm probably not the one to judge. It's it's just what is. Uh, so I'm I, I'm still at a point where I've I've finished up a novel. But it's something I've been working on for many years. And I still haven't written new fiction in this kind of new world we live in, or I haven't been able to. I was adding on to what had already existed. Um, So eh, it's gonna be, it feels like an enormous weight to even think about it. Because I was pondering, you know, the, the DeLillo book came out, The Silence,
0: Which everyone hated,
1: right? And I think I mean, did you read it?
0: No, I didn't read it. Okay, Uh, no, yeah,
1: yeah, I I wouldn't read it either. But I wondered, uh, are things you know, even something like that, which was already you know probably in process before the the pandemic started. My my instant thought was, I mean, what meaning does this have? I mean. maybe not specifically that, that book, but I mean, certainly that book is weighty compared to let's say the latest auto fiction, blah, blah, blah. But, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I've, (laughs) I think I'm going off on a tangent. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We should probably stop because I don't know what tangent this is.
0: (laughs) Um, can I ask you one more question about your novel? Um, sure. Is it something that you want to talk a little bit about, or just give us a, a general idea of where you're headed with that?
1: Sure. Uh, it's in the suavity of, of the rock is the name. And it's pri- It's trying to play with the autofiction marketing term as we know it. I mean, it's, there's a lot of crossover with my life and there's a lot of things I made up and it goes on to talk about someone who's in their 70s. So obviously that has not happened, but uh, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to throw acid in the zeitgeist of, we love auto fiction. So, I mean, you know, here it is, ba-boom, uh, here's, here's reality with Something that you, you can't tell whether this is someone's life or not, which is really the definition of fiction. It's just fiction. It doesn't have to be autofiction or this or that. It's just it's it's writing. It doesn't have to uh, conform to some label. So it's I sent it to a place, and so I'm I'm uh, waiting to hear back. But there's a lot, of, a lot of wonderful writers out there, and so we'll, we'll see if, if it comes through. I don't know if it will yet, but um, I hope it does. Yeah, I worked on it for probably five years or so, so we'll see.
0: Okay, very interesting. I'd be keen to read it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Greg Gerke. This episode is brought to you by Australian Border Force. Tough on borders, children, and tennis players since 2015. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Greg Gurky. All right, let's move on to your gateway books. Uh, what are some books that opened the doors of literature for you?
1: Well, um, it's kind of strange because it's, it's pretty much the same author three times. Uh, it's Joyce, and you know I I would I would put Beckett on the back end, Joyce and Beckett. But Joyce, uh, I think in junior year of high school or senior year, we had to do a, a paper on a novel, and I was the, one of the few that chose Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Most people chose Camus' The Stranger because of how short it is. Uh, those were the choices I think the tin drum was another choice and maybe one person did that anyway uh, I have a I was raised Catholic so I mean there was uh, identification there and um, it really started to seep in little by little that this is amazing you know speaking about the experience of the world this way, uh, how Joyce was doing it. But I, I mean, I, I was very slow I, growing up. I still couldn't have you know, gotten the whole novel, I think when I was 16 or 17, whenever I read it. And so maybe a few years went by and then I read Dubliners to kind of um, just get me through some hard times. I mean, I'd read parts of it in high school, Araby, of course, but that kind of brought me back into getting on track to more of a human, or uh, an artistic way. And because I'd been going into film uh and wanted to be a director and go to film school and I had started to do that but um at the same time I was literature was pulling at me as well and then um and then I did go to film school uh, but it I, I kind of, I needed to leave where I was living, which was Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And in, in doing that, I kind of left film school because I was going to another college. But that summer I was reading Ulysses for the first time. So it was Joyce again. Uh, and in in between those couple of years was Beckett, the plays, and the trilogy, and many other things but um those those two fellows were the ones that really uh, pushed me to to look at the world differently along with Ingmar Bergman and Kubrick uh so yeah Joyce three times
0: there you go that's a Pretty brilliant entry point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, here we are in the hundredth year of Ulysses,
0: Mm.
1: and uh, it's it never gets stale. And uh, fans are all over the the internet and reading groups and Finnegan's Way.
0: I think Bloom's Day is going to be massive this year. Let's move on to what you're currently reading and what you've recently enjoyed.
1: Okay. Um, well, in doing the the top 10, I went back to Rilke and the notebooks of Malt Lords Brigger So I've been looking at that again because actually that book was something I was really looking at for the, the novel that I just read. Uh, wrote but I didn't want to read it again I didn't want to have it in my mind that much so I I read a few pages of it some years ago and then I stopped but I mean I I'd read it before so I've I just today I've been looking at it again uh and I'll talk about it in the top 10 um the, the Deleuze cinema books uh the time image and the movement image I've been uh, going through those little by little because they're so heavy. And, uh, but I was just watching a lot of Orson Welles, uh, again, going through the films and I read his, he has a, maybe a two 10 page sec- sections on Wells in the time image where he, uh, puts him next to Nietzsche and, um, yeah, amazing stuff talking about um how wells manipulated time in the films and and the whole thing about the the younger person uh um there's always male relationships in most all the films and the younger person most always betrays the older person uh and wells often portrays the person that gets uh, betrayed. So just to see those films in, in the light of what Deleuze has said, really powerful stuff. Um, the Hardwick book, which I mentioned before, uh, James Lay, I'm reading, editor of the Sydney Review of Books, I believe. He's, he's on Twitter, his book, Uh, The Critic in the Modern World. I bought that recently. It talks about uh, Lionel Trilling, James Wood, Samuel Johnson, T.S. Eliot. It's pretty great. Uh, I've been enjoying that. What else? The Handke, as I've said, I went back to the early some early books that I never read, like The Left Handed Woman and, and A Sorrow Beyond Dreams, and finished Slow Homecoming. Um, so those were, I enjoyed Slow Homecoming much more. I think they're much deeper than those, those early books, even though the early books are wonderful by themselves. They kind of have that Fleur Jaggy, uh, <laughs> way about them or the, or DeLillo, or, you know, early DeLillo. They're very tight and, and crisp and short sentences. Um, and then in Slow Homecoming and then the later ones they're much more deformed. Uh, the Honka, he, he deforms it a lot and they're, they they kind of verge on essay Um, and they kind of, they almost go in and out of understanding for me. Like they'll, they'll be very wonderful and vivid and then they'll kind of get gray and charcoal and I'm not following, I'm not, it's not that I'm not following it. It's just, I'm not interested so much. I'm, 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 I'm reading, I'm reading it but I'm just looking at the words and I'm, I'm waiting for the next vivid section. Uh, that, that was the experience of uh, my year and the half uh, in the half, my year in the no man's Bay, which is one of those longer ones uh, that come at the end. But I'm, I'm looking forward to re- reading repetition, which say and and so many others say that it's, it's, Masterpiece, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And I've been going over Christine Scott again, kind of for the list, but also rereading *Prosperous Friends*. Uh, she has that floor jaggy quality too. That, uh, but you know, I experienced it in English. Floor is translated, but in English, Scott has this. Emily Dickinson, Elizabeth Bishop type of lyricism uh, that inverts her word choices and syntax and really makes it unlike anything, like Lutz, Geriel Lutz as well. Um, I often put them together uh, because of who they studied with, Gordon Lisch, and just their connections and they're both they make up their own worlds. So very interested in them still.
0: We covered most of it before. Is there any books that you're really looking forward to this year, apart from the ones we've already talked about?
1: Yes. Um, Janice Grill's essay book with Splice. I'm not sure of the name. Uh, I think it's coming later in the year. I've read, a, I've read the book probably when it was in a, in a previous incarnation. I think it's gone through some edits, but I'm uh, the way she talks about art um, and she's a Robert Musil translator. She's translated four of his books. The fourth one is coming this year. So she has two books. Um, the way she talks about Musil and philosophy and melds them all together, uh, amazing. I, I, I reprinted one of her essays in a when I guest edited a an issue of the, the Rupture magazine. So I, she's really interested in you know the book as an object, and and that's the, the essay in fact that was published, talking about the book as an object and the physicality. She fights John Berger, in in some of his ideas on certain other topics. Um, so that. The Logos, I think we mentioned that, Mark Da Silva, a very long book. And probably a, it's going to be a very difficult book for, <laughs> even aside from the length, it's going to be a very politically incorrect book. I know that. And can you get over that is, is the thing. Can you, you know, we we live in a world where we have to you you can't go outside and and erase the world like you you know you kind of do on twitter or something mute people you can't live that way i mean I, I don't think so you can't you have to face these things and face what we're living in with so many uh, people that are out of touch with reality or in cults so uh, this is going to be a, a hard book, and I hope, I hope uh, a lot of people read it and, and challenge themselves. And uh, I know you're looking forward to it.
0: Definitely. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Greg's Top Ten. This episode is sponsored by Mark A. Henry's debut novel, Lacking Evidence, The Contrary. It is a mind-bending pilgrimage into the imbalanced centre of the early 21st century. Densely plotted and populated with characters richly human in their fragility and fragile in their humanity, Lacking Evidence, The Contrary examines the ancient and eternal struggle between the quest for truth and the desire for belief in a postmodern world where reality is slipping from our grasp. Lucky Evidence Country is available from Booktopia, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and whatever lowbrow novels of questionable necessity are sold. We have one free copy for a lucky listener. DM me or email me for your chance to win. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Greg's Top 10.
1: these are not in any order they're not um and also i should say i took it to mean i know some people have put poetry and essays in i i took it to mean fiction and i also kind of took it to mean maybe something more personal i mean there's no joyce or gaddis and those probably would be on this list but Somehow I see their 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 uh, their works as all together, um, and like one doesn't hover above the rest because they're all kind of linked. But anyway, here we go. Uh, the tunnel, William Gass. Here's a novel that has become more and more infamous and maybe more inscrutable. Why would Gass write a long novel about such a reprehensible person? The anti-Gass, really, a a being who shares a few acres of biography and the same first name as him. The answer is in the question, but Gass also said, out of meanness. But then more seriously, he added, Rilke says, why do things exist in this world? They exist to become invisible that is to be seen by people and change from matter into mind by being perceived properly. And in that sense, the whole world, which is constantly flowing, has to be perceived and saved and redeemed, even if it's awful. And in fact, especially, because that's what we want to forget, end quote. It's certainly the most disturbing novel written in my lifetime too, as Michael Silverblatt first claimed. And there's no reason not to confront these novels. You can erase people or art out of our lives, but you can't erase their energy. It lives beside us as we sleep. And as soon as we walk out our door, there it is. Gass said it was a, it can't happen here type book, as in, as in an extremist fascist political party taking power. Well, it has happened. And in many places across the world, did we forget our history too soon? But even with all of Kohler's awfulness, there are these signature flights of prose as gorgeous as a Michelangelo, whatever his form, and that turns a screw into the reader. For how can you appreciate it? Though I would argue Kohler's confession is his own pain, the parents who hand down the hate or kill themselves through substances, and then the spouse. He comes to loathe. Fascism of the heart is the phrase. And next is Sutri, Cormac McCarthy. Sutri is the color orange for me. I read it in full twice. And though it takes place in all season, it feel, in all seasons, it feels autumnal as McCarthy describes the geology, flora, and fauna around Knoxville, Tennessee, the river, and the nearby Great Smoky Mountains. This is probably his most autobiographical novel. Such tree lives on a boat, catches fish, gets drunk, hangs out with ne'er-do-wells, but he's also quite smart and quite, contemptuousness, quite contemptuous of women. McCarthy was probably at the zenith of his Baroque and antiquated language period. I can remember writing out definitions of words over about four pages. Gordon Lish, who rejected an excerpt from the book for Esquire, said later in an interview that he could open any page of the novel and say, that's magic. And so I open a page and, quote, a big lemon-colored cat watched him from the top of a wood stove. He turned his head to see it better, and it elongated itself like hot, ta- hot taffy down the side of the stove and vanished headfirst in earth without a sound. So it's a book nobody but the author could have written, and like the tunnel, it was worked on for years, at least 15, maybe more. Though the book is on the whole sad, there are many comic incidents, like the watermelon humper and a person who keeps their dead relative in a big freezer at home so they can keep getting their assistance checked. I feel really joyous when I'm around this book. It's completely solid and compelling. Next, uh, Disgrace, J.M. Potse. I've wondered if this is the last novel of high significance that was also a popular success. A case can be made for the known world of Edward P. Jones. I think Sutri and the Crossing subsume and overshadow Cormac's The Road in the end. Disgrace is often taken as a political though it is taken as political though it is apolitical and mythically based. It also covers many hot button issues that have come to the forefront in the last 20 years race, sexual harassment, older men with younger women, the compulsion to make an official apology or statement. And these go along with the rape, the pregnancy, and the keeping the baby. The professor starts out with a prospering career, seeing his prostitutes every week and writing an opera based on Byron's later life. And then he ends up alone, eviscerated, killing dogs that no one wants. It's the last novel Goetze wrote before the flights of Elizabeth Pastello and beyond. It's a challenging book that James Wood unsuccessfully tried to argue against. Poor James. Um, Enigma of Arrival, B.S. Naipaul, was one of those books that stumped me on first reading it. I put it away and went back a few months later and it opened up wonderfully. Sebald before Sebald, a friend calls it. It's a mashup of Naipaul's time in the 70s living in the English countryside. He removed the figure of his wife, probably wisely given their history, and filled the book with a greater desperation, the writer struggling alone. But this story is set beside Naipaul's first coming to England when he was a young man and trying to assimilate to the Moors, which which takes place in the book's second hundred pages. It's a book about seeing in more ways than one, since Naipaul often sees so far into the souls of others and then rakes them over the coals, that it is frightening. But that power also disables him, even if he doesn't admit it, because this type of writing touches many levels. And the cost of such vision is revealed in the prolonged nervous breakdown that that is the whole book. Uh, Proust... A recherche le temps What can one say about the greatest novel and one of the greatest artworks in existence? It stands in a hallowed plane with Homer, Plato, Dante, Shakespeare, and Joyce. I'm only halfway through, but it is everything everyone said about it and plenty more. Six. The only short fiction collection on the list because every story is a different beautiful, terrifying world in Scott's universe. And I'm talking about Christine Scutt's um, A Day, Another Day, uh, Summer. I might have that title wrong, sorry. Uh, every sentence gives off a vibrant glitter. Her brow was a scowl, even sleeping. Enough to pause the reader who likes to run out of breath while sentence skimming. Scott smites him so he'll spend some time on the page. Her language is many-dappled, ambidextrous, in another word, poetic. But in a sentence, it is in turns both languorous and biting in between the capitalized first word and the period. Like Dickinson, Wolfe, and Bishop, her exemplars, there is wisdom and heat. The portrayals are stormy, people on the brink, These stories root deep, and we are invited to cut our fingers on her thorn. Portrait of the Lady, Henry James. Michael Gora's recent book on it pointed again, pointed out again what a stunning achievement it is. Maybe this is a novel that every adult at about 25 should be required to read. There are many secrets and paths to street smarts contained within. We are fallible people, and one of the reasons we read fiction is to read about other flawed persons to see how they deal with their lot. And all the characters in the Portrait of the Lady contain idiosyncrasies and imperfections, rounding them into quietly intricate sphere, spheres, so each is a fleshy being. Uh, the characters on James's page give off scents the reader can distinctly smell, odors that come by vertiginous thought pattern. And then Rilke, The Notebooks of Malt Lord's Briga, begin with the first line. So this is where people come to live. I would have thought it is a city to die in. And that is Paris, 1907 or thereabouts. This has to be the greatest novel written by an accomplished poet. It is a much more imbricated and bewitching brew detailing the toils of an artist than even Joyce's portrait. Though it is short, less than 200 pages, it reads long because the sentences are cross stitched, even in the English translations. And I might prefer Burton Pike's more recent stab to Stephen Mitchell's, though Mitchell's has an uncollected introduction by William Gass. Years ago in college, when I knew nothing, a friend sat up at night reading the book with that ridiculously long Dutch name. But Rilke's a poet, I cried. Little did I know that the book would come to haunt me and I still think it delivers the horror of someone beginning to see um, like no other, given all the supernatural scenes, the death of Christoph. Death Live and a a woman who bends down to a bowl and then her face remains in the bowl. Number nine, Absalom, Absalom. Uh, Not only the greatest American novel for me, it represents America and its many myths in the same way that Dante stands for the Italy of the Middle Ages and Shakespeare for hundreds of years of English history. Toni Morrison said in Absalom, Absalom. Incest is less of a taboo for an upper-class Southern family than acknowledging the one drop of black blood that would clearly soil the family line. Rather than lose its whiteness, the family chooses murder. There's a great hulking paradox in this country, and nothing can quite capture it. United States, nothing can quite capture it, and the shifts and mythopoetics that frame our history, like Uh, Absalom does. Faulkner dramatizes how two college kids, dorm bros, one of which, Quentin Thompson, will die by suicide in six months in The Sound and the Fury. They try to uh, reconstruct the history of the Septim clan amid Faulkner's bending of time. And Sleepless Nights, Elizabeth Hardwick. Looking back, I see I've picked six books that have a very similar base, portrait of the artist. Rilke is the clear precursor for the tunnel. Naipaul comes from Proust as so many do, undoubtedly Hardwick as well. I think Susan Sontag envied Hardwick this book most of all because it's what Sontag could not achieve in her own fiction. The closest she got was a short memoir piece about going to see Thomas Mann when young. Otherwise, in Sontag's essay concerning sleepless, we see Hardwick bringing the best out of her, as she says, "Nothing new in this book except language, the ever-found, powderizing the torment of personal relations with hot lexical choices, jumpy punctuation, mercurial sentence rhythms." devising more subtle, more engorged ways of knowing, of sympathizing, of keeping at bay. It's a matter of adjectives. It's where the stress falls. I would take this book with a boatload of Hardwick's essays as well, especially the one called In Maine and three uh, in this upcoming Uncollected. Uh, I think Hardwick's prose represents most that phrase of Emerson that I endlessly misquote as I read for the lusters and colorations. If only one knew what to remember or pretend to remember, she says on the first page, and then she composes a strange, uh, beautiful song to answer that. So those are the ten.
0: It's so lovely hearing your thoughts on those books, and it really does make me want to go back and read some of those books that yeah you've spoken
1: about which ones uh
0: I think Absalom Absalom was was certainly one that I would love to go back to um oh yeah like you I'm still in the midst of in search of lost time as well which I am hoping to finish by the time I'm 50 but we'll see how we go
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah amazing
0: all right before we wrap it up um can you tell us where we can find you online where we can read socrates on the beach and where hopefully we can read your fiction in the future
1: socrates on is the is the journal quarterly journal and uh i've got a website breakgerky.com and i'm on twitter endlessly shaking out uh not, not arguing about politics, but about art, books and films and, and stuff like that and sharing and, and hearing, you know, what other people like yourself, what, what, what you're enjoying and stuff.
0: Yeah, so it's a good place, to, good place to be and talk about books, I think. And, um,
1: yeah, a lot of great people there.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks once again to Greg Gerke. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for the next episode next week.